Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a senior fellow with the Mises Institute and previously the distinguished senior fellow at the R Street Institute. He is also the former principal deputy director of the U.S. Department of Treasury Office of Financial Research and the former president and CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago. Holding advanced degrees from the University of Chicago and Princeton University, he is the author of the legendary book, Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised. It is my great honor to welcome you to the show, Alex Pollack. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Firstly, I want to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your book, Finance and Philosophy. Well, thank you for the nice uh, comments with which you introduced me. I have spent now many decades, about five of them, uh, in banking and financial markets uh, in one way or another. Uh, as my book tells, there's a little bit of an autobiographical uh, prologue. And I tell how uh, a long time ago, being interviewed for a job as a management trainee in a big bank, the interview, uh, the interviewer asked me, well, why would a philosophy major be interested in banking? Because a philosophy major uh, was what I was. And I said, uh, because I find so many issues of banking philosophically interesting, like what is money and what is risk? And they seem to think that was a good answer. And uh, I, uh, I have not changed my mind about that in all the years since. I think if the more we study financial markets uh, and their highly interesting uh, group uh, behavior and alternate cycles, as people say, of, uh, of fear and greed or optimism and pessimism, or feeling certain and knowing, in fact, that you're uncertain uh, and trying to think about the, the psychology and the belief and the and what seems like knowledge, which turns out not to be knowledge, and how all those things interact with each other is just more and more uh, interesting uh, from a philosophical point of view, as well, of course, as a practical point of view of trying to understand uh, uh, financial markets and, and uh, banking markets uh, and their and their behavior. And then, of course, since all of these markets are highly involved uh, with the government and politics, and that was one of the reason, uh, reasons I've always found them interesting, was there's, this, there's a, an inevitable uh, political uh, dimension and the, uh, the amount of, of interplay between governments and banks or financial markets in general uh, is uh, extremely important. And it's one of the things that adds um, um, dimensions of making them hard to know where they're going to go. And of course, the government includes central banks and the behavior of central banks and the, and the whole theory of central banks, uh, which the leading central bank in the world is now, of course, the Federal Reserve. Uh, is also, uh, as we know, extremely important, but very interesting. And uh, you might uh, ask yourself, how does a central bank know what it should do? And my answer is, it can't. It's it's guessing, just like the rest of us. Uh, and its ability to forecast the future is just as poor as all the rest of us. Uh, uh, and its ability to know what the what the uh, effects of its own actions will be is distinctly limited, just like we had the, the world's leading central bank, which is full of absolutely brilliant people, uh, convinced 
just a year ago that the year 2021 would be a year of moderate to low inflation and that was their official forecast and they stuck to it longer than they should have because of course it's hard for anybody but especially a central banker to admit that you've made a mistake uh, and instead we got an extremely high inflation which goes on uh, to their surprise and the surprise of many people we uh, as you as you kindly mentioned uh, my book finance and philosophy with the subtitle why we're always surprised and the, the book discusses a lot about why financial markets and financial behavior surprise people all the time even the smartest and most knowledgeable and most informed uh, among us get surprised by what actually happens and we try to understand how that can be what kind of a strange uh, reality this financial reality gives rise to such surprises and uh, i'm now working on with a with a uh, co-author howard adler the sequel to that book uh, which is going to uh, discuss the crisis of 2020 and then the subsequent events including the the amazing uh, boom or bubble as it probably is which has followed and uh, we're going to call that book surprised again uh, as the world was in nineteen in uh, in twenty twenty. Well, that by way of introductory comments. So, in the book, you talk about the inherent unpredictability of financial markets, the necessity of boom and bust cycles to economic growth, and the steady two percent growth that the United States has seen overall over the last many decades, despite frequent recessions. The implied conclusion here is that recessions are unpredictable yet inevitable. So, Dr. Pollock, I wanted to ask you, in the same way that recessions are inevitable, does this boom and bust cycle also guarantee overall economic growth in the long run? Uh, what I say is a key question uh, about the maintenance of what I, what I call the amazing trend line. Uh, the Using Adam Smith's words, the natural progress of opulence, uh, which has been going on for about 200 years now, and it is the most astonishing thing that we went from a world in which almost everybody was crushingly poor and struggling to stay alive uh, into worlds which in, in many countries like this fortunate one, ordinary people are extremely well off, are, uh, are in much better shape economically speaking. Again, I think this is Adam Smith's phrase uh, than the savage king. Uh, as we apply science through technology, through innovation, through enterprise to making ordinary people better and better off uh, in, in every uh, way, not physically, nourishment, medical care, intellectual uh, uh, avenues open for exploration, cultural uh, experiences open and it's, and it's absolutely an amazing thing. Now you mentioned the two percent. The two percent isn't isn't steady. It's not always two percent, but it has averaged more than two percent real. Now that is to say, after we take inflation out of the picture, yeah, if you are growing at about two percent a year, that is to say, real output per capita. So real output per person gets two percent bigger every year, we have something astonishing that happens. In a hundred years, if that goes on, we're more than seven times better off, ordinary people. And 
in the society on average seven times at this two percent. So that's why I talk about it as the as the magic two uh, percent, and it is a, just an, an amazing achievement of the enterprising economy, uh, which some people call capitalism. But I think the enterprising economy is the better the better descriptor. And um, and there's no reason that can't continue. I'd like to tell the story of, uh, of an essay written by uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, in 1930. So with a worldwide depression on and everything looking very dark and bleak, uh, Keynes wrote a really quite interesting essay called Economic Prospects for Our Grandchildren. And in this essay, he speculated what will the economic world be like 100 years from now? So that would be 2030 from his writing in 1930. And he said, well, he thought that uh, economically people would be four to eight times better off uh, than they were in 1930. And so again, writing in this moment of vast pessimism, he imagined that the future people, that is to say us now, 2030 is not far off now, and certainly uh, our children and grandchildren would be four to eight times better off. Well, let's go. Uh, now, in order for that to happen, you have to have uh, a growth rate that gets up toward 2%. At 2%, it's over seven times. And he's going to be right. A 20, 30 people on average, quite ordinary people like you and like me, are going to be more than seven times better off than the people were in 1930. And if you go back in time beyond that, you get the same uh, amazing effect. Now, that's the real magic of the enterprising economy. The application, I want to try to state it a little more fully, it's the application of scientific knowledge through technology translated by enterprise into innovation uh, and uh, growing market activity you have to have something else in there. You have to have the rule of law to make all that possible. But given that this uh, growth has gone on and can continue to grow on, so could we imagine, I like to ask people, 100 years from now. So this is uh, the end of 2021. Uh, how about 2121? Do you imagine that people would be seven or eight times better off than they are now? Well, just takes 2% per year. Uh, now, however, it doesn't happen automatically at 2% per year. As we know, it goes up and down. There are booms, there are recessions, there are bubbles, there are busts, uh, and there are panics along the way. Uh, but on average, the trend line is remarkable. And even the Great Depression, which uh, is now quite far in the past, but still extremely uh, remembered, only looks like something of a blip on that very uh, downward blip on that very long term trend line, uh, as does the, uh, the crisis of the 1980s, uh, which were very, the there were economic and financial crises very serious in the 1980s. And of course, as we know, again in uh, 2007 9 and again at panic uh in 2020 now going on almost going to be two years ago soon the march of 2020 
But all those things in the long run look like blips. So now then I pose the question. Here's the marvelous, wonderful trend making us, almost all of us, much better off. Even the poorest people are vastly better off than the poorest people in a traditional society. Uh, barely staying alive or maybe not staying alive. Um, I just want to pause there to remember the great line of Thomas Hobbes, who described uh, life in the state of nature, as they called it in those days, as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, I think it probably wasn't solitary ever for human tribes, uh, but it was certainly crushingly poor, certainly uh, nasty and brutish, and usually short. And we're into the place now where, thanks to the enterprising economy as discussed, where uh, life is relatively rich uh, and and pleasant and, and ever longer. So it's not a surprise at all now when people live well up into their 80s. Um, now, given all that wonderful trend, uh, can that happen without the cycles? That's the, that is the question the book poses uh, to which you referred, uh, Adi. And uh, it seems to me the answer is probably no, that in order to have the wonderful trend, you have to have the cycles uh, along with them. And the reason for that, I speculate, I don't think I know this, but I, it seems like it's probably right to me, is that uh, the same thing which creates the growth, namely innovation, creativity, uh, also creates uncertainty, and uncertainty inevitably creates overshoots, uh, both upward and downward on, on the cycle. So uh, I, I wrote a, a review recently of a very great book on its 100th anniversary, uh, anniversary uh, Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit by Frank Knight. Uh, and uh, Knight in this, uh, uh, in this book says the key function of the entrepreneur in creating the new economic goods or better processes and therefore more uh, more economic well-being for all of us. The key function is the bearing of uncertainty and doing things where you can't know what's going to happen. And uh, you, but the entrepreneur tries it anyway. Of course, many fail, many go broke, but others become heroically successful uh, and do things uh, over time. Uh, like creating steam engines uh, and the uh, railroads and electricity and electric lighting uh, and the chemical uh, industry and radio and uh, television and of course computers and uh, and medicines and, and all the things that have happened one by one in waves that would never have been predicted in any specificity uh, but happen uh, anyway, and they come out of uncertainty, and because because no one really knows how they're going to work out, they're subject to, in my view, uh, waves of over optimism and then over pessimism. Uh, 
and uh, and hence the cycle. So my answer is, if if you love the marvelous trend created by science and enterprise and the rule of law, then you have to accept that along with it there will be these cycles. But when you're in the cycle, you can look forward to the long-term continuance of the trend, as we hope, uh, for that magic 2% real, 2% not counting inflation uh, uh, growth a year. If I, if I can take one more uh, second to tell a story um, uh, at the time of the uh, great housing bubble, of the early 21st century. And by the way, it's so good for our humility to realize that we keep on making these cyclical mistakes just like people did before us. We're not smarter than they were. There were always plenty of smart people around. Uh, and, uh, and we want to avoid the thought that we're somehow being the current people thinking about this uh, able to be so much smarter and better informed, and we're just as likely to make uh, massive mistakes as as uh, people in the past did. And so these cycles happen. There, there is on average a financial crisis about once every 10 years, and we do it over again. I'm sometimes asked, well, don't we learn the lessons? Why, why, don't, why don't we learn the lessons of these, of these busts that follow the booms? Uh, and my answer is we do learn the lessons. We learn them every time. But it doesn't stop us uh, from us, speaking of the humanity in general, it doesn't stop us from, from doing it over again. So here's the story. The Financial Times ran a contest to come up with the opposite for a bubble. They said, well, if you have a boom, it's pretty clear the opposite is a bust, a boom and bust. Uh, we know that. Actually, I have another book called Boom and Bust, if that might be interest, interesting to people. And anyway, they said, what is the opposite of a bubble? And my entry, which I was very fond of and still am, was a shrivel. First, you have the bubble and everything inflates, and then you have the shrivel and everything shrivels. Uh, but what happens after the shrivel is we get back to normal, life goes on, and the trend uh, continues. Uh, and that's the good news. And so, in my view, we look at this shape, you could call it the shape uh, of the economic past, and I think also the future is this upward sloping, wonderful trend followed by, uh, uh, around which, a wonderful trend around which we cycle in these uh, excitements of, uh, uh, of booms and bubbles, followed by busts and shrivels. Uh, but the the uh, amazing trend is the most remarkable thing of all. And we find ourselves unable with any uh, uh, consistent success to forecast the exact path of all this, because this is the result of human ingenuity, creativity, uncertainty, creating, strategizing expectations, uh, interacting with expectations. Uh, and so, it, as I said before, the problem isn't people are stupid, even the uh, even the most the most intelligent and the smartest do some of the things which in retrospect look the most stupid. So it's not about intelligence, it's about this fundamental, fascinating nature of, uh, of economic and financial reality. And, uh, and I'll just add one more thing, which is Bottom's principle, 
when I was uh, pretty young, I had a wonderful boss whose name was Edward Bottom. And one day I made some kind of a presentation or other, wrote it up in a memo and sent it to him. He asked me to come into his office. I came in, he asked me to sit down. I sat down. There was my memo lying on his desk. I can't remember what the memo said, but this I remember vividly. He looked across at me earnestly right into my eyes and said, Alex, it's easier to be brilliant than right. And that is so true. And it's advice, especially with people who are clever and used to a lot of academic success in their youth. Uh, I hope we can all remember that it's easier to be brilliant than right. So a lot of people um, have claimed that the, the, the factors that caused economic growth, such tremendous economic growth um, over the 20th century, um, are not, were not merely caused by just human innovation and ingenuity, um, and they aren't repeatable. For example, um, women joined the workforce in, in large part, so we, we doubled essentially the workforce. That's something that we can't do again. Um, human society moved from largely rural to, to largely urban. Um, that's something that can't be repeated. Um, so given that these factors um, that were largely behind the economic growth in the 20th century, um, they, they can't be repeated. Do you think that this, this sort of growth that we saw again can be? I do indeed. And remember that there are always uh, things going on that are changing. They're changing uh, partially as a result of outside factors, but partially as a result of the economic growth itself. Now, let's take this uh, idea, for example, that women came into the workforce. That's, of course, a misleading way to put it because women were always in the workforce. The women were always working very hard in production uh, in the home. And when you were on the farm or on the frontier and producing everything for yourself, the men were producing uh, the crops or, or bringing home the deer that they shot and the women were working all the time uh, producing the goods of life. Uh, so this notion that somehow women weren't working is pretty silly, actually, in my view, because in the real production, uh, uh, both sexes and all people, and by the way, children were working also uh, all of the time in order to, to stay alive in those days. So uh, you mentioned the 20th century. Of course, they, they had, we had tremendous, we humanity had tremendous economic growth in the 19th century as well. Uh, it was uh, amazing. I was just reading this morning about one of the last speeches given by President McKinley uh, before he was assassinated in Buffalo, uh, just at the beginning of the 20th century, where he was talking about the amazing richness of the society of the time, thinking of the wonderful growth of the 19th century. I'm sure the 19th century was full of non-repeatable uh, events as well. But looking back um, 120 years, of course, they hadn't seen anything yet. So I fully expect that there will continue to be non-repeatable things and that growth will continue because there, uh, if, the, if there are any limits, uh, to the to what the mind and the spirit and energy and uh, and risk taking or uncertainty bearing 
can create uh, when we're nowhere near them. Now, of course, our imaginations are always inadequate. Uh, our imaginations uh, of what is possible and, and not possible uh, are a poor uh, source of trying to make judgments about what may actually happen because the world is full of things which were in a previous time judged impossible. Uh, and uh, just to take a couple of financial examples of that recently, uh, of recent times, uh, many economists believe that negative interest rates were impossible, uh, but negative interest rates started happening about 10 years ago or so and still exist. Uh, and and many people in the financial uh, world had, let's say, uh, uh, 15 years or 20 years ago, you said, do you think the Federal Reserve could ever be $8 trillion big? I mean, surely would have told you that that was impossible. And yet it happened. And now, of course, and when we get to physical reality uh, uh, with, with rockets and drugs and the fact we're now used to having computers that talk to us and translate language into writing, all these things, uh, would have, would have boggled the imagination of previous generations, as would airplanes uh, uh, and, uh, and cars and televisions and things going further back. So uh, we can, uh, can expect to be surprised uh, not only by the cycles and the, and the uh, booms and bubbles and busts and shrivels which come upon us, but by, but by the amazing uh, productivity of the mind. Uh, when applied, uh, when applied to innovation and, and uh, production. So, in the past, you've been critical of the central banking system, calling the Federal Reserve the most dangerous financial institution. A view shared <laughs> by many Austrian and Chicago school economists. So after after widespread criticism that the Federal Reserve's policy agenda was inadequate after the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed pursued an aggressive stimulatory monetary policy um, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so far, we've seen one of the fastest recoveries from any recession. So, Dr. Pollock, is this quick recovery something that can be attributed to the different actions of the Fed this time around, as so many have claimed, or is something else behind it? This is a very good question. And of course, by being most dangerous doesn't, doesn't mean they can't also do good things because they can. But let us see the things that, the, that, a, that a central bank, including the Fed, uh, in a fiat currency regime, or even, uh, or even in a, in a what previous generations would have called an honest money regime are good at. Now, what is the a little quiz for anybody who's listening? What is the main reason for the creation of the Federal Reserve? Uh, and we find it in the first line of the introduction to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, which is the purpose of this act is to create Federal Reserve banks to create an elastic currency. And what do they mean by an elastic currency? That meant when you got into a panic or a crisis, you could print up some more money and use it to calm the crisis. That was the original uh, motivation, of principal motivation of the Federal Reserve Banks. And it turns out that they're actually quite good at that, uh, at bridging over the crisis uh, by creating credit and money. Uh, we saw it in... Uh, 
in 2009 with the crisis and again in, in 2020. Uh, however, that doesn't mean they're good at everything. By the way, there's one other thing they're really good at. They're really good at lending money to the government of which they're a part. That's an even more basic reason for central banks. It's the reason that the Bank of England was chartered in 1694. It was to lend money to King William so he could carry out his wars against France. Uh, and that th those are the two things, in my judgment, that central banks are truly good at. They're truly good at helping to bridge the crisis. And they're truly good at lending money to their own government, as we see right now, since the Federal Reserve has monetized, in other words, printed up money uh, to, uh, to give to the government against its bonds uh, to the tune of about $5 trillion. But uh, the, the theorists of central banks have often mistakenly, in my view, gone further and said, well, with these powers, these central banks can somehow manage the economy. Uh, that's what they can't do. And, and indeed, no one can do because no one can know enough to do that. And certainly, uh, certainly some committee uh, of central bank officers no matter how many economists they employ or how many computers they buy, you cannot know enough to manage the economy. Now, about uh, uh, five or six decades ago in the 1960s, uh, macroeconomists got, got very proud of themselves. And uh, they thought, based on the experience of the day, that they could do what was called fine-tuning the economy. And they thought uh, in the 1960s, they would be able to get rid of business and, and economic cycles. They would make the business cycle obsolete, they said, because they could fine-tune things. Uh, well, it was a nice idea. After that, we had cycles and, uh, and indeed crises in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now the 2020s. So that it's in their trying to do that uh, that they are highly dangerous uh, because they, by uh, uh, especially by expanding credit or by printing, as we say, uh, partially metaphorically and partially really, they really do print up dollar bills. They're about two trillion dollars U.S. currency outstanding, but they even more uh, expand money by just writing it onto their books. Uh, they can do a lot of other things which are, are less good, like create inflation, uh, which will rob the savings of their savers, the, the uh, savers of their savings, uh, and, uh, and rob the wage earners of the purchasing power of their wages. They can create, they can add to and make worse the bubbles, as the Federal Reserve uh, certainly has done and other central banks over, over time. Um, and, uh, and of course, operating subject to massive uncertainty and the inability to know what was going to happen, uh, such mistakes uh, are, in my view, inevitable. Uh, that said, they're still very good at elastic currency to help get over the crisis. So Just another don't count, on, don't count on them to manage things after that. 
So another thing that the critics of the Fed have called for is a switch to nominal GDP growth targeting instead of inflation, given that inflation fails to discriminate between supply and demand shocks and has a substantial time lag. So although you've claimed that any such indicators are are wholly unpredictable, especially by central banks, Ceteris (laughs) Paribus, would you prefer a switch to GDP targeting instead of inflation? No, I, I don't think any targeting can do it. And the reason is the fundamental nature of the economy. By the way, you did say especially by central banks, but it, it isn't especially by central banks. It's by anybody, including central banks, uh, cannot know uh, what's going to happen or, or, what, should, uh, uh, or what should be uh, done about it. Of course, we, we just had a, by the way, a, a conference that people are interested in. Uh, uh, put on at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, chaired by my friend uh, Paul Kupiak, uh, on a new book, Arguing This Nominal uh, GDP Targeting. I think it was quite an interesting uh, discussion, which which people could find. It's uh, the video of that conference is, is up and available. Uh, but in, in my view, the, the targeting of, uh, of anything will... Uh, Will not will not be the panacea. There are no panaceas. Okay, so one of the roles for which I think the Fed is important is mitigating the effects of fiscal policy. So unlike monetary policy, fiscal policy tends to have a strong political component, and thus is is highly unpredictable and may not always be aligned with the best interests of the economy. So nonetheless, in the end, they both influence inflation, unemployment, GDP, and so on. So, uh, Alex, I wanted to ask you how um, if, if we were to scale back the Fed or remove it altogether, as many have called for, um, how the potentially destructive um, effects of purely politically motivated fiscal policy are, are supposed to be mitigated, assuming that's necessary in the first place. I wouldn't uh, I'm not among those who would call for removing uh, the Federal Reserve altogether. I just don't want to have any any foolish illusions. Uh, on our part or on the part of its officers about what they're actually able to do or not do. Um, uh, humility and, uh, and changing your mind is uh, called for uh, in, in all this. Also, we have to remember that central banks, like the banking system in general, I mentioned before that banking is inevitably political, so is central banking. They are uh, always surrounded by uh, political forces, and that's been it's true of all central banks in all times. It's certainly true of the Federal Reserve uh, across its times, and especially, uh, especially in times of war, the central bank just becomes the servant of the treasury, uh, financing however many uh, tanks and bombs and planes you have to build and how many soldiers you have to pay. Uh, but that's also true in other crises, like let's say a crisis which is uh, begins with a uh, with a pandemic virus uh, the central bank tends to become a very tight partner with and by the way not inappropriately or even servant uh, of the government in financing its uh, its spending and so throughout the history uh, of the federal reserve you see this um, uh, the fact that it is, in fact, that central banking is, in fact, also a political um, uh, enterprise. Uh, it's a different arm of the government, but it is part of the government. Back in the 1950s, they used to say the Fed is independent within the government. Uh, 
seems like basically a logically incoherent statement, but it, uh, it probably accurately portrays the the messiness uh, of it. Uh, Arthur Burns, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1970s, and having written and worried a lot about inflation, uh, a lot about inflation in his earlier career, uh, and it was a very distinguished uh, economist, then presided over uh, the uh, the great inflation and extremely destructive uh, inflation of the 1970s. But anyway, Arthur Burns at one point uh, said about being the Fed, we can't exercise our independence for fear that we'll lose it. Think about that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so excellent. I, I wanted to, to talk to you a bit about the, the national debt. So with national debt now well over 100% of GDP at $30 trillion and constantly rising, there's been much talk of default and insolvency. So proponents of modern monetary theory and such have argued that monetarily independent nations don't need to worry about a balanced budget. And that because the interest rates on this new debt is so low, the absolute amount of debt is not an issue. However, the higher national debt bills, the riskier it becomes for investors, and so the higher interest rates go to compensate for that risk, and so on. So, Dr. Pollock, given our current situation, sorry, um, Alex, um, given our current situation with the debt and, and looking back to history, is insolvency and default a real threat, and what would that mean for the American people? There's nothing uh, unusual about defaults by sovereign governments. The uh, 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 Reinhardt and Rogoff in their wonderful book, This Time is Different, counted 250 defaults by sovereigns uh, over the last two centuries, right up to current times. Uh, and um, the, uh, you may remember the, uh, the private uh, bondholders of the government of Greece in the last Greek uh, crisis got 25 cents on the dollar. On the default, I'm, I'm fond of pointing out that historically the United States has defaulted four times on its debt. And every time we get into trouble, uh, some Secretary of the Treasury says we we must we must raise the debt ceiling because the United States has never defaulted on its debt. And uh, whatever you think about raising the debt ceiling, it's simply not true. The United States has defaulted on its debt. And those are explicit defaults, but the more relevant one is an implicit default. Uh, and the way you default implicitly is by inflating your current and inflating your economy, inflating the credit system, depreciating the currency, and just paying back uh, in currency, let's say dollars that are worth much less than they were when you contracted the debt. I'm fond of saying about the proponents of modern monetary theory that, that should be written, quote, modern, unquote, monetary theory, because there's nothing modern whatsoever about the theory. It's the oldest idea there is uh, that you just should have a, a paper currency and print up, speaking metaphorically, or print up as much of it as you want. Now we, as I said, we do print, but we also just do it through accounting books write up on your books however much you want that's the oldest uh, the oldest idea there is but what it does is it leads to an implicit default so when governments get in trouble uh, on their debt and are finding it uh, hard to pay uh, they could contemplate a an actual default where they don't pay but and that does happen with some frequency 
and then may lead to a restructuring of the debt or a reorganization of the debt with losses to the creditors. But it's much more appealing if you're a government not to have an explicit default, instead to have an implicit default and just inflate uh, uh, inflate the currency supply, blow it up, thereby depreciating its value and, and paying back in the dollars of uh, a depreciated worth. And of course, anybody who's a holder of your money uh, takes part in the losses uh, thereby, thereby generated. So finally, I wanted to talk to you about the high rates of inflation that we've seen recently. Um, prices for virtually everything from gas to groceries to cars have exploded. And there's been much debate about whether or not the inflation that we're seeing is transitory. So Alex, as someone who's in the banking industry, um, if uh, I wanted to ask if people have any reason to be worried and should be doing anything different with their finances, as well as what the appropriate action for Congress and the Fed should be. Well, of course, everything is transitory if you look at it long enough, including the certainly life and the existence of the world in a long enough time frame is transitory. But it was it was already it's already apparent that it was a mistake to talk about the current inflation as transitory. If by that you meant it would soon uh, disappear in a matter of months or something, that was clearly not the case. So I think the inflationary problem is serious. The inflationary problem is serious. With inflation at two percent, let alone at six or seven, year to date, I mean, not measuring year over year, but year to date, twenty twenty one, on eleven months, it's seven percent or six percent. These are very high inflation rates. They have to be taken uh, into account to the extent you have, you can. But of course, there's nothing that's that's for sure in finance. That's what. What keeps it interesting and the uh, things you're, you're sure will work in the way of creating hedges, uh, hedges uh, may not. Uh, one of the best buys around right now in terms of investments and a risk return basis are savings bonds, are I bonds, which are inflation adjusted and pay you the, the increase in the CPI. But uh, you can only buy $15,000 a year, but that's. Uh, an idea where the government itself uh, prevents its default by inflation by promising to pay you whatever the inflation is, at least the measured inflation. Uh, at, a, at a 2% inflation, which is now called low, which Arthur Burns in his younger days writing in the 1950s considered high, uh, but at a 2% inflation, we get the same math as we did with the 2% real growth, just in a negative way, instead of a positive way, uh, in a uh, in a regular, in a these days, an expected lifetime of 82 or 83 years, you have 2% inflation in the course of your life, prices work will quintuple. Now, uh, now, that's hard to imagine, too. The prices will all be five times higher by the time you're trying to survive, maybe on your savings in your retirement, uh, when you started off life, and that's with inflation at 2%. So probably the right inflation target is the one that Alan Greenspan articulated when he said it should be zero if properly measured. Of course, there's a lot of theory that goes into trying to measure this, but zero if properly measured. Uh, 
at any rate of inflation, you, you do get the depreciation of the currency and you have to just uh, uh, now uh, with the inflation at, uh, at six or seven percent, this obviously becomes a highly important thing, but it isn't that clear exactly uh, what you do, at least in the short or medium run uh uh, about it, but uh, you could consider that if you bought a 10-year United States Treasury note right now, after inflation, uh, your yield would be minus 5%. Five, if you hold that note, you're going to be poorer by 5% uh, at the end of every year than you were beforehand. So it's probably a good idea not to do that. Oh. Uh, I'll just close my inflationary thoughts with the uh, coming back to the to the implicit default. There's a great story of the Dionysus, the tyrant of Syracuse, who borrowed money from his citizens, his subjects, found out he couldn't pay it back in silver coin, which was the coin of the realm of his realm. So he passed. He uh, issued a decree that all citizens had to turn in their silver drachmas on pain of death. When they all turned in their silver drachmas. He melted them down, and each one drachma coin, he restamped two drachmas, uh, and then he paid off the debt in the new coin stamped two drachmas. Uh, and one can consider that, that, that he was therefore the father of all modern central banking. um well um that's 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 um i I think um given given what we're seeing now that's that's that that might sound more and more familiar to a lot pretty apt well well um anyway those are those are all the questions that i have for you today um i'm sure our viewers like myself will thoroughly enjoy this conversation and have learned a lot so thank you so so much for joining us on the show alex thank you very much it was really a pleasure uh to be with you Alex's book, Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised, is available on Amazon, and I highly recommend you go check that out. Um, Once again, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.